Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. The recent accession to the British throne by King Charles III has brought memories of my own royal connections flooding back. Now, you'll have to admit that not many ordinary people can lay claim to royal connections, but in my case, it was verified by no less an authoritative source than my own mother, Margaret Kenny from Jervis Street, Dublin. I am one of a rare breed of Dubliner who can actually claim to be a true dub, with all my parents, grandparents and even great-grandparents coming from the north and south inner city. But my royal connections began the day I was born, in a tenement room on the top floor of number 42 Eccles Street. The year was 1948 and the day was Wednesday, September the 22nd. My mother, of course, was naturally in attendance, as was my granny, one of those tenement women who doubled as a local midwife when need arose. Infant mortality rates at the time were high, not to mention that childbirth was a riskier business to mothers in those days. So, when I decided to arrive early and, in the process, cause some complications, my granny sent a neighbour across the street to the Matter Hospital to ask for help. Apparently, that lady had to cause a bit of an uproar over at the Matter in her plea for someone to come over and help the poor real woman across the street struggling to have her baby. She got the attention all right and in all the commotion also attracted the attention of an eminent British physician who just happened to be visiting the Matter Hospital that day. He decided to accompany the maternity nurse and it was this eminent doctor who safely plucked me from my mother's womb and handed me to the maternity nurse. It all happened very fast and the situation was certainly not one where you would stand on ceremony. Yet, as he took charge, it was the doctor's consideration and kindness that impressed my granny and my mother, talking to them reassuringly in a lovely posh Scottish accent. Now, of course... I don't actually remember any of the proceedings, but suffice to say that I emerged into the heart of dear old Dublin to the delight of all concerned, as my mother would recount on many occasions all my life, usually beginning mischievously with, Of course, you do know that Vincent, that's myself, was delivered by a royal physician. You see, when the eminent doctor left, the nurse turned around and said, I hope you all realise how privileged you are. That was Professor Sir John Weir, senior physician to the royal family who's visiting Dublin today and will soon be returning to London to assist at the impending Royal Bert. 52 days later, on November the 14th, 1948, Princess Elizabeth, the future Queen, did indeed give birth to a baby boy. Charles, with Sir John Weir in attendance. So you will appreciate why I have always watched King Charles with curious eyes, knowing as it were our shared secret. 
the eminent professor who arrived into our tenement room on that fateful day in 1948, was indeed a distinguished visitor. He was professor and royal physician to no less than six monarchs, including King Edward VII, Edward VIII, George V and George VI. Sir John Weir, a Scot, was also a homeopath and a favourite friend of the royal family. And when Princess Elizabeth did become queen five years later, she continued the tradition in supporting homeopathy. Professor Weir remained firmly entrenched within the British royal family and also the royal families of Norway, Sweden and Denmark. So that was the eminent doctor who supervised my humble Bert in a Dublin tenement. King Charles III was born in Buckingham Palace and every child born on that day within the Commonwealth received a royal gift. In 1948 it was a food parcel. But no, I didn't get one, despite the fact that in September 1948 the Irish Free State, as it was officially known, was still a member of the British Commonwealth. So I was both a citizen of the Free State and a Commonwealth subject. However, this year, to mark King Charles' coronation, any child born on the same day receives a commemorative mug. So maybe I should give King Charles a call. We are connected after all. I can't go, said my friend John, in a hushed and disappointed tone. So you can have my ticket and bus seat, I suppose. But you owe me. I stood there, weak with excitement. I wanted to hug my dear friend so much. But teenage lads, wearing leather biker jackets in 1980s Ireland, didn't hug each other. At least not in northwest Donegal, where we lived. So all I said was, all right, shin deadly. My remaining challenge was to get permission from my parents. But my mother just said, Go ahead, as long as you mind yourself. And she even paid for my ticket. So what was this great gift being presented to me? Only a ticket to see what was, at that time, the biggest rock act in the world, Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band Play Life. On the 1st of June, 1985, aged 15, I took a bus to Slane Castle for what was to be my first outdoor concert. I remember it all so vividly. Though we had to catch the bus in Guidor before 7am, I'd stayed up the night before till 2am, listening to Mark Cagney do a full night train show dedicated to Bruce's music on Radio 2. I knew all the songs from The River and Born in the USA albums, but now I heard for the first time songs like New York City Serenade, Darkness on the Edge of Town, and many more, songs that I grow to know intimately and keep returning to throughout my life. 
It is on record as being the hottest day of that year. Trying to look cool went out the window, and our denim jackets were quickly tied around our waists. I had never seen so many people before. Yet, in true Irish fashion, we ran into a group of older girls from home, one of whom I had a crush on at the time, and they let us tag along with them into the concert site. We got a good position with a clear view of the stage, and I vividly remember the stage crew hosing people at the front just to cool them down. When Bruce finally walked out on stage, my first thought was his outfit was very uncool. He started the show wearing a navy and yellow polo shirt, most unrock star, I thought, beside Clarence the sax player's loud pink jumpsuit and Nils the guitar's flowing garb. I also remember the concern on Bruce's face, visible over the huge video screen, as he encouraged the crowd to take it easy up front for fear of people getting hurt. It was the largest crowd he'd ever played to up until then, and he spoke afterwards about his genuine worry at the beginning of the show for people's safety. I remember the entire crowd singing along to the river as the huge screens showed the river Boyne flowing in the background. Magical. Then the girl I fancied put her arms around me as we sang and swayed along. She may have consumed a fair bit of cider, but I didn't care. I was in heaven. Ever since that day, Bruce has remained the consistent musical reference point for me throughout my life. I've seen him live many times. But my most vivid memory from that day brought about another realisation for me. As we returned home late that night, sunburnt to a crispy rasher, the cheery bus driver, the same bus driver who would carry me off and to and from college in Dublin a few years later, stopped at the bottom of my lane and remarked to me, You'll always be okay. I thought at first that he was mocking me, and I sharply replied, What do you mean? He pointed and said, The lights are on. Someone's waiting up for you. And he was right. My mother was awake, and she listened to me tell her all about my day with Bruce. Not about the older girls, of course. A young man must have some secrets. Even though she knew nothing about Bruce's music, and probably didn't care, but she knew what it meant to me. And though my mother was all about letting us be ourselves, she was also about family. She inspired a sense of unity and family in myself and my siblings that has long outlasted her and which has now been passed on to a third generation. The bus driver was right. That light always remained on for me. My mother's name was Mary, and as it happens, many of Bruce's songs have characters called Mary. From the teenage mother in the river, to the Mary who dances across the porch as the radio plays in Thunder Road. So it was probably inevitable that when my wife gave birth to our daughter, we called her Mary. As a little girl of nine, she sat on my shoulders to share the experience of Bruce in the RDS. She proudly boasts that Bruce was her first real concert. Tonight, my lovely son Kieran will join me in the same venue to experience the magic. Bruce's music has always been there through my life to help me along if I needed it, and I will always cherish his company. But ultimately, it was my mother Mary who made me who I am.
Most days in Limerick, my temporary and beloved home, I was inside gray skies, a grid of buildings, and strangers under hoods and umbrellas who could be friends, but were not yet. We rushed by in our haste to get warm and dry, to get food and drink, to get drunk and flirt with someone, anyone. I also lived across the street from the Shannon River, so wandered the boardwalk, with a vagabond's hope for a heron or swan to claim me, swooping me up across the water. The Shannon is a tidal river, surging at four knots on the ebb. High tides can reach 17 feet under a full moon and high winds. I tracked its rise and fall, and its current, quiet or quick, and understood in my river-keeping. Time was a current. But this current was more than a metaphor. People lost and at their ends. Booze, drugs, unemployment, heartbreak. And feeling forgotten in this post-Celtic tiger Ireland. Men, mostly men, and mostly young, took their own lives in the Shannon. Two men in one month, right in front of my house. My landlady explained that for a few years... Right after the 2008 crash, it was particularly bad. It's gotten better, she said. Not as many, not as often. But what is better when it comes to suicide? One morning, while I was drinking tea in bed, still holding onto the night's warmth, a helicopter churned loud and low over the river. Boats and fire trucks raced into view. News flashed on my feed. Emergency services have been deployed to a river rescue following the report of an individual entering the River Shannon this morning. I watched at the window, hands pressed to the cold pane, and remembered, as I prayed, a long-ago November night in college when I jumped into a half-frozen lake and was saved by campus security. How I swam away from their dinghy, how I fought their hands in kindness, how I longed to disappear underwater, to stay alone in my aloneness, how a burly officer dove in and hooked his arm around my neck as if catching the saddest, angriest sea monster. No, I said. No, no, no. Yes, he said. Yes, yes, yes. When we reached shore, I shivered with a sudden tooth-chattering violence, but felt, too, how I was being returned to the world. I remember the moon, so bright and distant in that dark sky, and the officer whispering, We'll get you warm. Help is coming. And the odd flash of recognition when I walked alone at night along the Shannon, a keening toward that old despair. How easy to jump into that current. I searched instead for the swans paddling in the moonlight, 
as if my searching for them mattered. One late night, I walked around the river, crossing over its bridges, circling the dark, circling my ordinary loneliness, circling my way to compromise. Keep moving, don't stop. Keep moving, don't stop. I leaned against the river railing and watched a swan paddle through the dark water. Ghost bird. A man and woman on bicycles and wearing bright yellow vests pedaled up and stopped. Quiet, gentle smiles. The limerick suicide watch. How's your evening? the man asked. Grand, I said. Just watching the swans. You okay out here by yourself? the woman asked. Oh, I said, just walking. The answer was no, and the answer was yes, and I knew I'd keep walking and would be in bed soon, would not be in the river, because I could see that was what they feared, because the man was searching my face, and the woman seemed to be watching my hands that gripped the railing. It's just that we noticed you've been walking around the river for a while now, so, the man said. How many people had they missed? How many people had they found who might have been thinking, this, 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 now, now, now? And how many had they saved? And could I be the counterweight to the many they had not? I saw their worry and decided not to worry them unnecessarily. Thank you, I said. It's a lovely night. No rain. But now I'm on my way back home to bed. They smiled, waiting on their bikes, and I saw they were hoping I'd walk on. And so I did. Dawn Chorus It was the first bird that called me, her one note like a waking bell. Mist was down, leaching the garden white. I made my way by memory and sound, for they were all calling me then, singing a path to the trees, where I lay on my back beneath their canopy of song. An orchestra of throats, woodwind of pigeon, and the small birds in their high chorus. I lay on the ground until they had finished, and I was quite cold. Then I got up and stepped back into my tongue.
I was introduced to beekeeping by the father of a good friend of mine. He was a retired military man who, when he spoke about bees, shifted into a curious and mysterious world occupied by queens, drones, workers, propolis, frames, smokers, an entire glossary of words with which he sought to convey the fascinating, ordered chaos of the hive to me. I was smitten. My beekeeper friend suggested that if I were really interested, I should attend a course in beekeeping. Encouragingly, he added that if I completed the course, he'd give me a hive. Who could resist such an offer? I located a course for beginners run by the Dublin Beekeepers Association. It seemed appropriate that the instructor was a cleric named Brother Bean. And eight weeks later, after a crash course in beekeeping basics, which led me infinitely further into that magical universe, I was given a certificate and a blessing, the former of which I proudly took with me to my mentor's home as proof of having fulfilled my part of the bargain. He seemed a little surprised, but pleased, and, true to his word, he went out to his shed and returned with the main components of a beehive, minus bees. During the following weeks I acquired a nucleus, or starter population, of bees, and went through the terrifying excitement of installing them in that first beehive. And so began many happy years of beekeeping, with my mentor always at the end of the telephone, should I need his advice. Sadly, about 15 years later, my beekeeper mentor passed away. His family contacted me to let me know that he'd hoped that I would inherit his bees, as no one in the family was keen on doing so. For those unfamiliar with beekeeping, the offer of two hives filled with bees at the beginning of summer is like gold dust. Beekeepers dream of such moments. So one May evening I set off to collect the hives. Transporting beehives isn't an unusual practice. Beekeepers often move their hives from location to location to gather pollen and nectar from different plants as the honey flow progresses throughout the seasons. The hives are usually and preferably transported in an upright position. My problem was that the hives were of the large WBC kind, as they're known, the ones with the big pitched roof that you often see in photographs but which are, at least nowadays in Ireland, rarely used as they're so heavy and cumbersome. It was immediately clear to me that they wouldn't fit standing upright in my low-roofed estate car. Thinking myself resourceful, I decided to seal the hive entrances with foam sponge and strap the various sections of the hive very tightly together before laying them horizontally in the back of my car. With a lot of strenuous heaving, which had to be done alone as my mentor's family were beasting intolerant, I manoeuvred the heavy hives through the garden and then placed them as gently as possible into the car. I set off across Dublin to my home in Harold's Cross, a gentle, contented hum emanating from the rear of my car. I passed through Clontarf and Merino, and the buzzing seemed to get louder. In Fairview, the traffic grew heavy. The now distressed-sounding buzzing of up to 100,000 agitated bees grew in intensity and it was then I heard the first bee alarmingly close to my right ear. I waved my hand at it. Then again. Suddenly, 
There were two or more bees in my sight and flying close to my head. I swatted again. This time, a driver stuck in traffic going in the opposite direction waved back. As the traffic inched forward, more bees escaped the hives till a loud, cacophonous buzzing pulsated throughout the car. Bees were hitting the windscreen, landing on my arms and head while I tried to fend them off. Meanwhile, more surprised but friendly drivers waved at me. By the time I reached the customs house, the interior of my car was a cloud of agitated bees. That's when they began to sting. My ankles, my arms, my shoulders all fell victim. I considered bailing out and simply abandoning the car, but the prospect of that humiliation prevented me. So, resigning myself to the pain, I continued driving and waving all the way across the Liffey, along the quays, up under the arch of Christchurch Cathedral, past St. Patrick's and on to Harold's Cross. I can't recall how many times I was stung, nor how many passing motorists and pedestrians crossing the road waved back, some very energetically, mirroring my own frantic gestures. Arriving home, I realised that what had to be done had to be done immediately. I leaped from the car, my head and clothes a tangled veil of escapees, and opened up the rear door. Another wave of bees stormed out. I could see that the strapping had loosened and allowed the bees to escape. I slid the hives out and erected them vertically beside the car and then carried them one by one into my garden and stood them in their new resting places. If the neighbours had looked out of their windows, they would have seen a man frantically tearing off his clothes, running towards the back door, naked by the time he got there, his arms spinning like windmills. Perhaps they would have waved back. As for the bees, they settled in quickly, and by the next day they were discovering new flight paths to sources of pollen and nectar to create many golden harvests over the years. Reward enough, perhaps, but there was also the deep satisfaction of discovering that, despite their reputation to the contrary, Dublin drivers, even in congested traffic, are really a friendly bunch after all. Our son Donald was a boy who couldn't wait to get going. Looking back, it seemed like he hardly ever got a full night's sleep when he was a child, because he had too much to do. He was too busy planning things, organising things. He was walking at nine months, playing rugby and GAA from five or six. He used to say to his sister Gemma, who was two years older, don't you learn to drive before me. I'd say to him, Donald, you need to have more patience in life. It was hard to be cross when he was taller than me by the time he was 11. I'd stand on the first step of the stairs to give out to him so he wasn't towering over me. He was always a generous boy, one of life's givers. If you gave him a fiver to wash the car, he'd go and buy each of us a bar of chocolate. Mind you, he might get himself too. Later, he would literally spend his last penny on magnificent presents for his friends.
He loved sport, music, the company and a good laugh and he was able to give as good as he got both on and off the field. His cousins and friends learned never to leave their Facebook page or their phone unguarded around him or he'd be sending some prank messages. Donal had big plans, but when he was only 12 years old, illness came in the form of cancer diagnosis. Over the following years, we were by Donald's side as he fought cancer twice and endured things no parent wants to see their child to have to suffer for one moment. Grueling chemotherapy, radiation, sickness, hair loss and loss of dignity. After that, the crushing disappointment of no longer being able to continue with his promising sporting career. He started coaching rugby instead. I watched him practice a kick with a youngster over and over. That is the generosity of him again. He took up cycling, was as sociable as ever, and along the way he raised over €50,000 for Crumlin's Children's Hospital Oncology Unit. In the autumn of 2012, when he was 16, he was diagnosed with terminal cancer, where there was no hope of living for more than a few months. He decided he was not going to let cancer dictate what was left of his life, and he wanted to give something back. And he wrote two letters which he hoped could be published after he died. In 2013, Ireland was suffering from a very high rate of suicide. Teenagers in particular were affected. In the letters, he asked people to appreciate their lives and never be afraid to ask for help from the people who love them, no matter how desperately they were feeling. He talked about how much he himself wanted to live even a few months more. These letters came to public attention when he won a local hero competition for a school essay not long after that, which led to interviews with Kerry Radio and Kerry's Eye, and then an appearance on the Saturday night show on RTE. Suddenly, the whole country was listening to Donald Walsh. Donald talked about how he still had a precious life to live, even while he was dying with cancer, how he wanted everyone to appreciate the little things in their lives, to ask for help if they needed it, and live their lives into the future. After Donald spoke on RTE, and to this day, we received so many letters from people of all walks of life telling us of the impact Donald had on their lives. This humbles us, and at the same time, invigorates us to help spread his message. Donald made the most of the time he had left. I had a bit of a tussle with him when it came to him getting a fake ID so he could experience what it was like to go into a nightclub. Mum, realistically, I'm not going to be here when I'm 18, he said. I have to try this now. And how could I argue with that? Anyway, all a Tralee would know Donald was 16. His age was on the front page of the local newspaper after a fundraiser. So that fake ID was more of a rite of passage than anything else. A very important part of Donald's life was his faith. He had a belief and a trust in God that was unshakable. He wasn't afraid of dying. He just really, really wanted to live. When he was close to death, the parish priest, Father Padraig, anointed him and asked him if he was afraid. And Donald's reply was, no, Father, just a little nervous. Life without Donald is definitely not what we signed up for. Every day we miss him. We miss the banter, the arguments, the quick wit, the questions, the friends streaming through the house and the noise and all his potential and all the things he could have done and become. We learned to live a different life, a life without Donal, but bringing him with us in our hearts. 
Next week, over 2,500 students from across Ireland will be coming to Knock Marion Shrine on Thursday the 11th of May to help celebrate his 10th anniversary Mass. This has been happening every year and it still amazes us that he can have such an influence on people who were only five and six when he died. We know he's near and with us. A lot of people say there are signs, and yes, we've had the robins and the butterflies pay us a visit. But it has to be when someone contacts us out of the blue and tells us that Donal has done him a favour or looked after a problem for them. That's when I know he's happy. Happy helping. On this morning's programme, we heard The King and I by Vincent Kenny, Mary Bruce and Me by Cahal O'Gallachor, Riverkeeper by Kerry Neville, Dawn Chorus, a poem by Grace Wells, Transporting Bees in Dublin was by Kevin Connolly, and Remembering Donal by Elma Walsh. The music was Zadok the Priest by Handel, sung by the Choir of King's College, Cambridge and the English Chamber Orchestra, conducted by David Wilcox. The River by Bruce Springsteen. Drive the Cold Winter Away by Horse Lips. And we play that in tribute to the late Johnny Thien of Horse Lips, who passed away recently. Min Rastas Rata, Where the Trush Toils by Sibelius, sung by the Estonian Chamber Choir. And Flight of the Bumblebee by Rimsky Korsakov, played by the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields, conducted by Neville Mariner. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon. On sound was Sheila Neville, and the producer is Sarah Binchy. And just to mention that Ireland's suicide prevention charity, Pieta, has a free 24 hour, seven day a week helpline for anyone who needs support. The number is 1800. 1800- 247 247 1800 247 247 or cpata.ie To listen back to this morning's programme, go to the RTE radio player or the programme website and you can find more from this and other arts and culture programmes on rte.ie forward slash culture. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.